Well, it turns out that we are just a week from the end of Epiphany Tide. I know that just breaks your hearts, doesn't it? Epiphany Tide. If you were here um, a few weeks ago, I forget when it was three or four Sundays ago, I was talking about the liturgical um, calendar in terms of Christmas and, and the way Christmas works, because we don't have any clue anymore. For us, Christmas is a day. You know, Actually, I guess Christmas season starts before Thanksgiving now with all the decorations and the commercials and all that. But for us, Christmas is a day. But for the early church, right up through... Um, you know, the Middle Ages and, and actually into modern times in terms of liturgical churches now, Catholic Church, Anglican Church, so on and so forth. Christmas is a 40-day season. And there's that number again, that 40. You know, we keep talking about the way numbers are used in scriptures. Numbers are symbolic. They carry truth. The number 40 means a time of trial and testing into a rebirth. And so here is Christmas season starting at Christmas and ending 12 days later on Twelfth Night which is January 5th, which is also Epiphany Eve because January 6th is the Feast of the Epiphany. And so there's our 12 days of Christmas that we sing about. We don't really know what's going on, but it's a 12-day Christmas-tide season followed immediately by Epiphany Tide that goes from February 6th until, I'm sorry, January 6th until February 2nd. February 2nd is the Feast of the Presentation. So between Epiphany and Presentation, you add all that together and you get 40 days. All right? And if you remember, if you didn't get your decorations down by 12th night on January 5th, it's bad luck to, to take them down before presentation day. So if you still have your decorations up, you're good. If you took them down, watch out for 2019, okay? <laughs> Actually, that's exactly what we did. <laughs> we took them down in between. Be that as it may. So when we leave, when we leave uh, Epiphany Tide, when we leave the 40 days of Christmas season, we're going to have a month off, basically, and then we're going to start Lent. And Lent this year starts, it's always different. Lent starts on uh, Ash Wednesday, March 6th, and then it goes until April 20th, another 40-day period. And I know on Holy Saturday, if you add all that up, it's really 46 days, but the church doesn't count the Sundays because you don't have to fast. So it's another 40 days, another time of trial, testing, preparation into a rebirth. And, of course, this is the rebirth of Easter. And so it's really interesting to me, and I love the way the liturgical calendar works, even though we don't follow it here. But for the people in those liturgical churches, if they're really tuned in, it is a beautiful way to keep all of this right in the forefront of your minds every day. And that's what we keep harping on here. That's what we keep talking about. It's about presence. It's about awareness. It's about bringing all these unseen things into the moments of your life and, and bring it all together as one. And so the liturgical calendar, of course, galvanized these people, brought them together into a common cause, a common you know, experience. And uh, we've, we've kind of lost all that. But if you think about it, what we're doing right now in this period that we're in and we're going to be entering is the period between Christmas and Easter. We're living between those two, just as Jesus did, right? Jesus lived between Christmas and Easter, between his birth and between his death. If you think about it, it's like one of those, the, the tombstone that people sometimes make a big deal about the dash, you know, the beginning date, the ending date, and between is a dash. And Everything that the person was is included just in the dash. In fact, someone wrote a poem about it. 
And I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but let me quickly read just a part of it. I read of a man who stood to speak at a funeral of a friend. He referred to the dates on the tombstone from the beginning to the end. He noted that first came the date of birth and spoke of the following date with tears, but he said what mattered most of all was the dash between those years. For that dash represents all the time they spent alive on earth. And now only those who love them know what that little line is worth. For it matters not how much we own the cars, the house, the cash. What matters is how we live and love and how we spend our dash. So think about this long and hard. Are there things you'd like to change? For you never know how much. So when your eulogy is being read with your life's actions to rehash, would you be proud of the things they say about how you lived your dash? (laughs) But I'll tell you what, Jesus didn't even get a dash. Jesus got a comma. Think about that. Some of you who grew up in the Catholic Church or maybe the, the Anglican Church, Episcopal Church, maybe High Lutheran or Methodist, do you remember reciting the Apostles' Creed? Okay. Take a look in your, you can look in your bulletins if you want. Uh, there's just a little snippet of the Apostles' Creed there, the first few lines, and take a listen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. So take a look at that line again. He was born of the Virgin Mary, comma, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, and was buried. Richard Rohr has been doing a series this week, which has been kind of interesting about following Jesus. And he makes this comment about the comma. Have you ever noticed the huge leap the creed makes between born of the Virgin Mary and suffered under Pontius Pilate? A single comma connects the two statements, and falling into that yawning gap as if it were a mere detail is everything Jesus said and did between his birth and his death. Called the great comma, the gap certainly invites some serious questions. Did all the things Jesus said and did in those years not count for much? Were they nothing to believe in? Was it only his birth and death that mattered? Does the gap in some way explain Christianity's often dismal record of imitating Jesus' life and his teaching? With its emphasis on theory and theology, but no emphasis on praxis. Praxis is a Greek word that means practice. It means action, what we do. The creed set, creanity, set, the creed set Christianity on a course we are still following today. And then he quotes uh, a church historian by the name of Diana Butler Bass. And she writes, Throughout the first five centuries, people understood Christianity primarily as a way of life in the present. So this is the first five centuries after the crucifixion. People understood, the followers of Jesus understood Christianity primarily as a way of life in the present, not as a doctrinal system, esoteric belief, or even the promise of eternal salvation. By followers enacting Jesus' teaching, Christianity changed and improved the lives of its inherents and served as a practical spiritual pathway. This way, and the earliest Christian followers were called followers of the way, people of the way, bettered their existence for countless ancient believers. Now, what they're basically doing here is restating 
things that we've been saying here for about 12 years. You know, we've always been talking about how Jesus, Jews, and followers of the way, for 500 years, they followed this way of living life. Jesus didn't give us a doctrinal system. He didn't give us a, a, a theology as much as he just gave us a way of living life, a way of connecting with each other and with Father. He was adamant about this over and over and over again. If you live the way I live, if you love the way I love, then you're going to know a truth and the truth is going to make you free. It was all about this way of living life. It is so instructive for us to realize that Jesus' first followers, first Jews and then Greek Gentiles, called themselves followers of the way, not followers of Jesus, not Christians. That came much later by a third party trying to identify this sect. Followers of the way. That means something if we're willing to take a look and see what it means. So for 500 years, those first 500 years, these followers were more more focused on orthopraxy than orthodoxy. Now there's two big words for you. Ortho means straight in Greek. You heard of orthopedics? Yeah? Okay, you know that means about getting your bones straight and everything, right? It really means straight training. So training your bones and doing whatever you need to do. Orthodoxy is straight thinking. Orthopraxy is straight or right action, right practice, right living. These first followers of Jesus were about orthopraxy much more than orthodoxy. But something started to change, right? Beginning in the 3rd century in the mid to late 3rd century, when the First Apostles' Creed was written, the Gentile church fathers, the ones that were the leaders of the church, started to make a radical break with the first Jewish followers. And they focused more on right thinking. They were focused more on the theology. They were focused on making distinctions between what they believed and all these other sects that were believing. Because the first few generations and centuries of Christianity were like the Wild West. Everybody had a different take on what Jesus was talking about because he wasn't that specific. He wasn't building a theology. He was giving this way of life, and so people were interpreting it differently. And so the church fathers had to come down on what the right thought was, the right idea was, the right description was. And then in the last 500 years since the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, we've made an art form out of it, completely breaking with the church traditions and the rituals and the practices of the early church or even the medieval church. And now something that is so focused intellectually that it's completely different. The first followers of Jesus, both Jewish and Gentile, celebrated life. Their first symbols were about life. This was the life of Jesus that he lived physically and the life that he lived in the resurrection. But it was all about life. And the symbols of early Christianity, the earliest generations after Jesus, think about it. They were the fish, which obviously was a, a preservation of life, the anchor, a preservation of life, and concentric circles, signifying the eternality of Father and Son, all about life. But after the 4th century on, more and more Gentile Christianity was focused on the death of Jesus, symbolized by the cross. And of course the resurrection, but the resurrection was pointing to the next life and not so much this life. And so we got ourselves into a place after the first 500 years where Christianity was focused more on the death as the mechanism for the new life that was going to take place somewhere else. And this life became sort of a holding pattern. It wasn't focused on as much. Just as Richard Rohr 
and Diana Bass are trying to say here. The focus wasn't on the comma. The focus wasn't on the dash. The focus was on the endpoints and where that was going to be leading. Now, I want to stress really quickly here, you know, for all of you that might be writhing in your seats a little bit, this isn't an either-or situation. It's both and. What we're trying to do is find a balance. Of course, the birth, the death, the resurrection of Jesus are critically important to our faith. But we can't forget the dash. We can't forget the comma. We can't forget what Jesus lived and taught. Because if we do that, then our lives become static. Aren't we supposed to be about transformation? Well, we would hope so. Those first generations after Jesus transformed themselves in ways that we don't see as much in our church. The lives of the people changed dramatically, not institutionally from the top down, but from the, from the bottom up. It was an amazing thing to see. And so what we want to do is return the balance The pendulum has been pulled so far to the side of intellectualism, so far to the side of the endpoints of the next life, that we want to pull it back. And we have to ask, what about Jesus' comma? What about that comma? And more importantly, what does Jesus' comma say about our dash? How we're supposed to live our dash. This is really what this whole season can be about if we let it. The symbolism of being in a season, a period between the birth of Jesus and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. What we understand from Jesus, if we really start to look at this, is that this life that we've been given is meant to be lived fully, as if the moment that we're in right now is the only moment that exists. Because truthfully it is. Even though, yes, there will be more moments after. Or maybe it's the same moment with changing circumstances. However you look at it, if we aren't immersed in this moment, giving it everything that we have to give, then what Jesus would say is, you can't go where I'm going. The unfortunate translation is, you're not worthy of following me. But it's the same thing. You just can't go where I'm going. You're not going to be able to experience what I'm experiencing. On Saturday mornings, um, we had our third of a series of Saturday morning virtual workshops, trying something online with the little Hollywood Squares, you know, video kind of thing that we do. And we've been, we've been going through uh, a way of building an intentional spirituality, kind of retreating in place, if you will, finding a way to build what we need to build to be able to get this praxis, get this practice going. And we were talking about just some of these issues on Saturday that If we're going to follow Jesus, if we're really going to follow what he was showing us how to do, then we're going to need to move from this intellectual place to an experiential place, from abstract thought and theory to concrete praxis, concrete practice. We're going to need to go from orthodoxy to orthopraxy. We're going to need to realize that knowledge alone is not going to take us on the journey that we want to go on any more than reading Tarzan is going to take you to Africa, right? You know, it's interesting to me that we have some pastors that will say, hey, you know, sitting in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than sitting in your garage makes you a car. Have you heard that one before? All right. And, and this is exactly what we're getting at. Unfortunately, even though we say that, we continue to live as if that's really true. That we can somehow show up, go through the rituals, learn our catechism, learn our Bible study, 
learn the tenets of our faith, say the sinner's prayer, and everything in the next life is going to be what we need it, but we're not focused here and now. This is what we want to turn around. If we're really going to follow Jesus, this is the way it needs to work. We need to move more toward what the Eastern Church believes about their theology, and we've talked about this before. Eastern Orthodoxy believes that their theology is meant and is there to limit error, not to give an absolute declarative description of the Godhead, of God and his attributes, because that's impossible for finite minds to be able to describe infinity, but to limit error. And if we can realize that our theology is the same way, we focus so much on it as an absolute, when really what it's doing is describing the playing field for us. It's giving us the parameters within which this journey needs to be taken. It's limiting the error so that we don't need to go off into the ditch and into negative returns because that time-worn path for millennia has been followed and we've got the scriptures. We've got this guide in place if we will just take it. But we still have to take the journey. The journey is what's important. So as we were talking about this, someone asked a really, really good question. They asked, what would a church look like that was actually trying to teach and practice this following of Jesus in this way? Well, that's the $64,000 question, isn't it? And my response was that, first of all, such a church would give equal weight to the theology and the thought as it does to the practice of daily living. Those two things would be held up and, and, and given in equal weight to the people. There would be an admission, the church would admit, that their theology and their thought can only point toward this way of living, toward this intimate relationship. It doesn't substitute for the relationship. It doesn't substitute for the engagement in the journey. This church would be helping people, encouraging them to engage in a change of mind, concepts and thought, that would feed a change of habit in their lives. And so once again, all we can do here is talk on a morning like this, right? But if these thoughts, if these concepts will start to begin the process of a change of mind that then feeds a change of habit, something that you actually do, then we're on the right path. It's only when our thoughts become an end in themselves and no longer point to the relationship, to the intimacy, to the connection, that we get ourselves in trouble. And, of course, this church would teach this way and model this way and help members engage in their own journey. That's what a a church would look like. And, of course, this is exactly what we're trying to do here. You know, for better, for worse, and richer and poorer for the last decade or so, we've been trying to do exactly those things. And as I look at it right now, I think they're for us. You know, trying, you're here, right? Hopefully, you are wanting to engage in a deeper journey, a deeper walk. There are three distinctions I think that we need to make that will set the stage for this change of habit that we're talking about. And they're in your bulletins if you want to take a look. I have them. There's three verses this versus that. These distinctions, I think, we need to make. The first one is religion versus spirituality. And I think all of us realize that there is a difference between religion and spirituality. 
Bill, who was with us for the virtual retreat, he had an interesting way of putting it. He said that religion is man's way of approaching God. Spirituality is God's way of connecting with us. I thought that was pretty good. I like that. If you look up religion in the dictionary, what you're going to find is that it is a system of beliefs and practices set around some sort of faith, some around some sort of divinity. And so it's this system of beliefs and practices. The thing about religion is, is that it gets such a bad rap today because it's often done so badly. But religion is absolutely necessary to this journey that we're talking about. Because where is the praxis? The praxis is in the structure that either the religion, the faith community gives us, or we give ourselves a structure that we're disciplined to, we keep showing up to day and day after, part of a community with accountability so that we're working with other people, a place to give back, a place for service. How do we do that outside of a community? Religion, if it's done well, can give us all those things. It needs to give us all those things. In the beginning, it did give us all those things. If you dial back the clock of any religion, you find one person, typically, who had such an intense spiritual experience that it changed their life, changed their life completely. And if that change was attractive to others and they started following, now you have the beginnings of a religion. As soon as you have a group gathered around one faith, one divinity, one way of looking at how we approach our God. And once you have a group, now you've got to have rules. You've got to figure out what you're going to do together. What do you do when you meet? You know, so often I say there's only three things people can do when they get together. That's eat food, sing songs, and tell stories. That's it. You can dress it all up. You can do it in different order. You can wear funny hats. But basically, we're eating food, we're telling stories, and we're singing songs. But the way that we do it, the liturgical calendar that we set up, how we understand our faith and how we understand our connection with each other is the religion. And if the religion is being done well, the way religion was designed, then when an adherent, when a person comes into the group and practices what they practice within the group, it is leading them to the same experience that happened at the very beginning that gave rise to the religion. It should lead the individual back because it's about that experience with God that's at issue. The problem with religion is that those beliefs and practices, practices they devolve into dogma and ritual. What's dogma? Dogma is a belief that is just handed down on authority. It has no basis for it. It's just accepted because of the authority from which it was delivered. That's dogma. There is no thought on the, on the part of the person who accepts the dogma. They just accept it, usually because they have to. And ritual is fine unless it gets so rote that it's done automatically, mindlessly, without any thought to the symbols, without any thought to the, the, the experience and the relationship that such practice is designed to bring us back to. Religion is necessary for us. It's just done badly. We need both. Religion is the belief system and the practices. Spirituality is the state of being connected with the unseen, with God's spirit, with each other, with each other's spirit. The religion is supposed to take us into the spiritual experience but it often doesn't do that. Here's, in essence, what needs to happen. Each one of us needs to develop our own personal theology. 
our own personal religion. Now, that sounds kind of weird to many of us. Did you even think you had permission to do that? But we have to. If we just accept the group think, if we mindlessly go through that, if we don't make it our own, if we don't internalize it, if we don't know why we're doing what we're doing, if we don't know why we're praying what we're praying, how is it taking us to this praxis? How is this taking us to Jesus' life and experience and what he was there to try to tell us to do? You know? Every religion started personally, and it only becomes transformational in any of us when it becomes personal to us. We need to adopt it, make it ours. We need to be doing it, whatever it is that we set ourselves up to do, whatever structure we create for ourselves, whether anyone is looking or not, whether we get any recognition or not. We do it because we love to do it because it's bringing us into contact with God. And so the question is, is this really what Jesus was trying to show us? I want you to take a look at Mark 2, starting at verse 24. Now the Pharisees were saying to Jesus, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now who are they and what is what, right? (laughs) They are Jesus' disciples. And what are they doing that's not lawful on the Sabbath? They're walking through the grain fields and they're hungry. So as it was permitted under the law for them to do, they were picking the heads of grain on the Sabbath. They were rubbing them in their hands, blowing off the chaff and eating the kernels because they were hungry. That was all lawful under the law of Moses. But the Pharisees had developed a much more elaborate system of oral tradition. And this broke the tradition of winnowing. Winnowing was the blowing of the chaff off to make something edible that was not previously edible. That was not allowed on the Sabbath, according to the Pharisees. So even though it didn't break the written law, it broke their rules. And here they are complaining to Jesus, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus says to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest. And he also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. I want you to consider that last line. I mean, it's obviously even even in the English what Jesus is trying to say here. The Sabbath, which is now the placeholder, the code for the entire law, for the entire prophets, everything that is about their system, right? Their religious system, their code. He's saying, that was made for man. Man wasn't made to blindly follow it. But when we take this back into the Aramaic, something even more radical takes place. Because the word that is translated man here in English is barnashah. Barnashah in Aramaic literally means the son of man. Bar is son, nashah. It can be man or it can be human, a person. So literally this could be translated as a human being or a human. But not only that, where they've capitalized son of man and made it refer directly to Jesus, guess what the word is there? Barnashah. But in a slightly different formation, which can open it up to maybe mean humanity or mankind. And the word for Lord there that they've capitalized to refer directly to Jesus is mara. Mara is the word for master or Lord that was used for anybody. It was not directly tied 
to God. If it were Adonai, which is translated as Lord, that would directly mean God. There are scholars who believe that the best translation for this last line is that the Sabbath was made for humans and not humans for the Sabbath, so that humanity is Lord even of the Sabbath. And if we take that even further into our context, then religion was made for humans, not humans for religion. And humanity is master of, needs to work the religion to be able to do what it's supposed to do in our lives. Even if you don't want to take that passage that far, and it's responsible to do so and from the Aramaic, but even if you don't want to, the gist of what Jesus is saying is still there. It's still clear. He's telling us we have to take this system, whatever it is, from wherever it comes, no matter how long it's been standing, and we have to master it for ourselves. It has to become part of us. If anything is going to take place in our lives, that starts to take us in the direction of Jesus. The second distinction is between the passive and the active. When we're, not de- when we're just dealing with the bookends, when we just have a comma or a dash between the two, we're living a more passive life, a more passive existence. The real power is outside of ourselves, which of course it is, but how do we connect with that power? At Luke 9, verse 23, Jesus was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. What Jesus is basically telling us here, I love that daily, that one little word there. You pick up your cross daily. Okay, So he's not talking about some grand sacrifice of our lives, not a one-time, one-off thing. He's talking about every single day to give everything that you are. Let's face it, crucifixion takes everything that you are, right? Literal crucifixion. But the crucifixion he's talking about is literally to give away everything that you are every single day in the course of events, in the course of relationship, in the course of encounters with whoever you're encountering, to be able to take up your cross and engage, to immerse to that degree, to lose your own life in the process, in the engagement, and that's where you find it. This is anything but, but passive. There is no vicarious way to follow Jesus. You can't let the clergy do it. You can't let the teacher do it. You can't even let God or Jesus do it for you. They are there. We connect with them is what Jesus is saying. It's like, instead of like getting a degree, it's more like learning to ride a bike. It's like learning a second language. It's like learning to play a sport, learning to play a musical instrument, something that will take hours and hours and hours of practice, building muscle memory until it becomes a part of who you are. This is where Jesus is pointing with this way of living as he lives. The third distinction the spiritual versus the physical. Matthew 22, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? The greatest commandment in the law. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, 
This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. And the law and the prophets is code for the entire body of Jewish thought, of the Jewish religion, of the Jewish code. What is Jesus doing here? The greatest commandment. First he quotes from Deuteronomy 6. Love God. Then he quotes from Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. You see, we as Gentile Christians, more and more through the centuries, started to believe that in order to be more spiritual, we had to be less physical. In order to be pious, we had to pull away from the world, pull away from those physical connections and entanglements to become more and more separate from. That was our our hallmark. Most of us were raised that way, understanding that way. But for a Jew... And for Jesus as a Jew and for the people that were listening to Jesus to become more spiritual was to immerse in life. What do the Jews say to this day? L'chaim, right? To life. To immerse in life, to become more and more connected with life is how you become more spiritual. There is the sense that we have to love God by loving each other. We cannot separate the two. We are in love with God when we are in love with his creation when we are celebrating his creation, when we're immersed in his creation, and with everyone and anything that comes into our path during the moments of our day. Take a look at what 1 John says at at chapter 4, verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Here is John quoting Jesus. We just talked about there. It's another agrapha, right? There's a quotation from Jesus that doesn't appear, but he's saying, we got this command from him. We got this command from Jesus. If you say you love God and you hate your brother, if you're not loving your brother, you can't be loving your God. It's this understanding that Physicality. As long as we're breathing, the only way we can express our spirituality is through our physical relationships, through our physical presence here, acting, immersing in the physical world. But it's right here also that we need to be careful. We want to make sure that we don't get the cart before the horse. We don't get the effect before the cause. Many of us have equated loving our brother with a cause, with social justice maybe, with social reform, with doing good deeds. We take that and kind of macroize it, take it into those things. I don't often disagree with Richard Rohr, but I want to read you a place where I do. This will be fun, right? In this same week of of following Jesus, here's another thing that he wrote. He said that Jesus said, and he quotes from Matthew 9, people do not put new wine skin, new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the skins burst, the wine spills out, and the skins are ruined. Rather, they pour new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. So now Richard Rohr says, it is not enough to talk about some kind of new inebriating wine, some new ideas, without new wineskins, changed institutions, systems, and structures. I would argue that transformation cannot be deep or lasting without that. As Dorothy Day says in her 
inimitable kingdom style. Nothing is going to change until we stop accepting the dirty, rotten system. Personal salvation cannot be divorced from social and systemic implications. That is a huge line. Think about what he's saying there. Personal salvation cannot be divorced, separated from social and systemic implications. It's easier to talk about the wine without the wineskins, to talk about salvation theories without any new world order. Unfortunately, Christianity has not always had a positive impact on Western civilization and the peoples it has colonized or evangelized. By and large, we Christians did not produce positive change in culture or institutions that operated differently from the rest. But here's the truth. Christianity didn't change the culture or the institutions around it until the culture and the institutions first changed Christianity. Christianity as first practice was micro. Christianity as first practice was grassroots. By the 4th century, when Christianity had grown to become a state religion of Rome, it so resembled the Roman Empire itself that all that changed were pagan temples turned into churches and pagan priests turned into Christian priests. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Nothing really changed except the names on the door. By the time Christianity was in a position, had the power to change institutions and cultures, it had already been radically changed itself and not for the better. Think about the way that Jesus taught It was very different. Not co-opted by the Romans. Jesus wasn't trying to change the systems around him. He was trying to change the people's hearts. That he did. And when enough hearts were changed, they changed the, the culture of their own institutions, their own home fellowships changed radically. People who were rich were now putting their weekly increase on the tables to be divvied up by all. It was voluntary socialism, voluntary communism, if you will. They were changed. And the communities that they were a part of changed. But nothing changed in Rome. Nothing changed in the larger culture. Jesus is working from the inside out. Jesus is working from the bottom up. It's real easy to start to see Jesus as a social warrior, a social reformer. But that's not what he was really trying to do. Every time that mantle was imposed upon him, he shrugged it off and he went in a different direction. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, I'd be operating much differently. But I'm working on the heart. I'm working from the inside out. The service that we do, we need to make sure that we keep this right-sized, that we don't let the cart before the horse or the effect before the cause. The service that we do, the connection that we do, is something that flows out of who we have become because of this connection with God's Spirit. If it is an obligation, if it is a grand cause in which ego is always tied, isn't it? The bigger it gets, the more that we've got a conflict of interest built in. It's harder and harder to stay in this pure space that Jesus is trying to get us all funneled into as we go. I love the way that Thomas Merton puts it. Take a listen to how he characterizes this. 
Do not then stir yourself up to useless interior tasks and activities. Avoid everything that will bring unnecessary complications into your life. Live in as much peace and quiet and retirement as you can, and do not go out of your way to get involved in labors and duties, no matter how much glory they may seem to give to God. Do the tasks appointed to you as perfectly as you can, with disinterested love and great peace. And disinterested love sounds bad, but what he's talking about is love without an agenda. Love without a specific outcome that must be achieved. It's love for its own sake. It's momentary. It's here and it's now because someone needs something and you can deliver it. Do the task appointed to you as perfectly as you can with disinterested love and great peace in order to show your desire of pleasing God. Love and serve him peacefully and in all your works preserve recollection. Recollection of what? Recollection of God's presence in all of this. Don't let it get so far out ahead that it's just a task now. It's just a cause. Preserve recollection. Do what you do quietly and without fuss. Seek solitude as much as you can. Dwell in the silence of your own soul and rest there in the simple and simplifying light which God is infusing into you. Do not make the mistake of aspiring to the spectacular experiences that you read about in the lives of the great mystics. None of those graces can sanctify you nearly so well as this obscure and purifying light and love of God, which is given you to no other end than to make you perfect in his love. And if that's not clear, how about Brother Lawrence? Much simpler, much shorter. Men invent means and methods of coming at God's love. They learn rules and set up devices to remind them of that love. And it seems like a world of trouble to bring oneself into the consciousness of God's presence. Yet it might be so simple. Is it not quicker and easier just to do our common business, holy for the love of him? Do what you do all day long, but with the recollection of Thomas Merton, with the holy for the love of God of Brother Lawrence. And everything becomes that prayer. Everything flows. There is this effortless effort that starts to become part of our lives. Living in the comma, right? Living in the dash, as we're trying to do right now, is a balance between these three distinctions, I believe. If we can do that. Can we balance between the discipline and the structure of religion? And the pure just being an experience of spirituality. Not fall down to one side or another, but really balance those two. Still working hard. Still engaging strongly. But at the same time, the effortless effort is there. The state of being connected is not broken. Can we balance between the complete and passive acceptance of a free gift of God's love? Because that's what Paul said. Hey, nobody earns this stuff so that they can boast. It's a free gift. But on the other hand, balancing that with the full engagement, with the unlearning that needs to happen so that we can actually accept this gift, can we balance the active and the passive? Can we balance the religion and the spirituality? And finally, can we balance the spirit and the physical? Can we engage in a devotional practice of directly loving the unseen God, but at the same time richly engaged in loving each other in whatever form or shape that takes. This is what it's like 
living in the comma, living in the dash, creating this new habit of being that allows us to flow with this effortless effort. And right now, in this period between Christmas and Easter, seems like a perfect time for us to be able to keep that at the forefront of our minds and see about that balance, establishing that in our lives and celebrating Jesus' life as much as we do his birth, his death, and his resurrection. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Again, gratitude. Thank you for this beautiful liturgy that has been handed down to us, that informs us, that can instruct us, that can guide us. Thank you for the scripture. Thank you for the model of the people who have worked so hard to be able to make these balances. Help us at least to think through this, to decide whether we think this is fruitful for us individually, each one of us, to move in such a direction. And if so, to have the courage, to have the discipline, to put in place the accountability that will help us to actually do it, to live our dash to live your karma so that we can be more and more connected to you and to each other every single day. Father, thank you for the, the modeling. Thank you for the, the instruction. Thank you for the presence that makes this possible. And never let us forget that we can only do any of this because you've already done it first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, let's all stand.